I am delighted to be joined for a conversation about AI with Eve Poole. Hi there, Eve. Hello, Mark. Um, look, I, I'm particularly happy to be talking about this subject with you because it feels like you bring together quite rarely organisational expertise, theological um, stroke philosophical expertise and an understanding of AI and the technological. And it feels to me this is particularly important because amidst all that is said about AI and particularly the worries around it, what often feels to me as if it's missing is the human element. You know, what is intelligence anyway? Who are we? What are we trying to replicate or, um, you know, add to um, when we're thinking about AI? Um, and so, you know, your work, particularly in your recent book, Robot Souls, feels to me to be particularly important. So I hope to unpack some of that now. It's also worth saying that we're in touch partly because I'm involved in a project thinking about how love can be designed into processes and services and, and of course, AIs and other products as well, um, facets of caring. I was just reflecting, um, thinking about this call, that I think one of the other areas of, of overlap and similarity is that your project is very much looking at design. And I think where my thinking has taken me over the last few years is thinking about AI more in design terms rather than kind of functionality, I guess. Um, and that's really what's brought me to this idea of, of Robot Souls and Junk Code, which I think we'll talk about, which very much... Uh, shades into conversations about about love. Yeah, so look, um, maybe a good place to start is where maybe many people are at right now, which is just this sense of of what's happening um, from catastrophic threat to enormous benefit. Um, there's this debate even whether it should be called artificial intelligence or machine learning. But one of the things which um, I like about what you say is um, it's, it's us who are setting the parameters um, and you use this analogy of parenting and you want to create the right environment for your children to grow into. And so similarly, there's a sense in which what we ask of AIs will shape what they become. Um, I, and I think this is a really important point. You know, even a self-driving car, so-called, so-called, actually is still being told where to go. Um, and the whys and the wherefores are set by the human beings. Um, so, yeah, wh wh where do you stand? You know, do you have sleepless nights or do you think actually because of our involvement with the shaping of machine learning, there's still everything to play for? I mean, I think I think I, the thing I love about this whole conversation is it's not dissimilar to so many other conversations we have where we we love to externalise, we love to project, we love to kind of imagine that, you know, we're not part of the system and it's somebody else's fault and somebody else has done this or will sort it out. And it's a bit like the work I've done on capitalism and all these other things where we forget our agency. And AI, you're absolutely right, is entirely in our gift generally at the moment. I think where AI gets more interesting, though, um, and, and we're talking as there is a, a meeting in Bletchley um, about frontier AI and, and safety, um, is that we're in danger of, of sort of talking about apples and pears. So, so it is true that there is some AI that is absolutely still in our gift. So you're right, driverless cars, 
you know, an awful lot of the sort of black box, even the generative um, models like ChatGPT, you know, they are parameterized, there are rules, um, you can switch them off. You, you know, there are, are ways we need to optimize that and make sure we drive out bias and all those kinds of things. But they aren't really an existential threat. They they can be annoying if we get them very wrong. So they can be used by bad actors. They can be, you know, fraught with, with bias and discrimination. They could have unintended consequences, all those things. But that's not a new human problem. I think what is new about AI is that we are also, for all kinds of good reasons, embarking on a project where we don't actually have an exit strategy because knowing how we work in terms of our intelligence is one of the things that we prize is our ability to sort of pivot and think on our feet and innovate and all that stuff. So if you're designing, you know, the next Mars rover, you want to design some kind of robot that could repair itself if, you, you know, a comet hit its leg or something. But in order to do that, you need to create an artificial intelligence that can change its mind, that can have something that looks a bit like free will. And of course, that's where the parenting thing comes in as a really helpful analogy, because the second you try and take that baby home from the hospital, you suddenly realise this thing is inherently unpredictable and there isn't really a rule book. <laughs> and what do you do about that? And so as a species, we've got loads of smarts on parenting. You know, when do you do tight loose? When, what kind of rule regime is appropriate? Reward, punishment, freedom, all of those big you know, questions, you know, we, we have actually had to wrestle with that because we've been dealing with things that we have created that have free will. So even though the AI is not a person, and again, we could absolutely talk about that, um, there are definitely some parallels in how we need to address that sort of frontier AI where it may not be controllable in the way that some of the first generation AIs absolutely are. So, you know, it's so interesting, the subject, you immediately get in really very deep, um, you know, notions like free will start popping up. And I want to get there, but maybe just to inch towards there, another um, point which you make, which I think is, 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 is a very good one, is that um, in the development of AIs, partly because of this unpredictability, there's also going to be the question of mitigating risk, which big corporations are going to be concerned about because there could easily be class actions coming their way, you know, as you as we've seen in big pharma and so on. So even more so in AI. Um, but what you're suggesting is that there's a kind of virtuous spiral that could be ascended where the very practical business of mitigating risk couples to humanizing AI. Um, so to ensure that it does serve human ends, um, and, and I like that, that that felt to me quite an innovative um, thought to inject into the conversation, as it were, that um, it's it's doubly in our interest to get this right for the corporation. So they're not, um, you know, sued for uh, for billions, but also for everybody else so that these things are actually doing the kinds of things which we would want. Yeah. And, and this gets straight back to your idea about design and love, because if you think about other parties, species, um, or, or organic or non, um, that have free will. Um, we certainly know that, that humans suffer from that predicament. So trying to understand how you would de-risk that, it behoves us to look at our own design. 
And, and of course, that's what I've done in trying to figure out, well, if everybody's worried about this control problem and the alignment problem of how do you make sure AI stays on track and doesn't go rogue? Well, you know, disciplines like biomimicry would say, well, you, you see what nature's already conjured up because it's had, you know, thousands and thousands of years of evolution to try and get that right, probably millions in some cases. Um, and when you start looking in detail about how humans are hardwired, um, in terms of functionality that has been baked into our own design to try and keep us on the straight and narrow, you discover loads of stuff that actually has been deliberately left out of AI because it looked like it was kind of design flaws or junk code or, you know, wrong directions. Um, so things like love, um, I mean, we do have some um, robots where we have tried to kind of make them appear emotional or, or whatever for various ends. And again, we can come back to that. But if you think about love and if you think about emotion more generally, if you are going to design a species with free will and you're going to design a species that for whatever reason to do with brain complexity or whatever takes nine months to gestate and when it is born, it is largely helpless, you're going to have to have something in that design to stop mothers just chucking their babies over the side of a hill and pushing off, you know, down the pup. So, you know, emotion is a really crucial bit of functionality to make us bond with our own children, make us bond with our parents, make us bond with other people in community so that we not only protect our young, but we protect the vulnerable and, and we look after people because we develop ties of kith and kin. So, you know, one subset of all of that is love uh, and it is probably the, the overriding emotion in the whole package. Uh, but if you look at the function of emotions, it is about risk mitigation because your, your species wouldn't even get to any start if you didn't have that built in. Um, and what I do in my in my Robot Souls book is I go through a whole range of, of junk code, um, all the things we've left on the cutting room floor, that when you look at them again, you start thinking, well, actually, that's in there for a very good reason. So another example would be uncertainty. So you know, John Keats talked about um, negative capability or the, the, the ability we have to sort of hold two things in our, our mind at once. And it's a very, very human capacity that to be able to um, entertain possibilities and options without necessarily pushing towards a, a conclusion every time and being able to cope with quite large amounts of ambiguity. And if you think about what function that serves, as opposed to it being marvellous or fascinating or intriguing as a phenomenon it's actually to slow down decision making because it makes you pause it makes you double check it may make you look at options or ask wiser people and it's about de-risking your decision making so you don't precipitously rush off um the nearest cliff again uh, for survival reasons and ai knows this because bayesian ai is now looking at how do you factor that in so say you were doing um cancer scan imaging and you're trying to categorize in an AI through cancer and no cancer in a very binary way, what happens if you just get a, a rubbish image that's a bit blurry or is is, is actually, a, a, you know, from another data set? Well, you have to have a kind of capacity to sort of essentially vote on levels of certainty so that if it's not certain enough that this is yes or no, it gets escalated to a person who could then look at the image and say, well, that that's just a really bad photograph. We'll need to take that one again. Um, so, so again, that has been recognised as as risk mitigation, not as, oh, 
people are so flaky and rubbish, they can't possibly make decisions, um, which is how you might have constructed it, that we need AI to stop us being uncertain. We need that level of absolute clarity um, because that is about, as you say, mitigating risk. So it's a really interesting area when you start looking at our own design in order to mitigate risk. And it, it does suggest we need these things to be a lot more human because that's how we've solved our own risk problems really on that front. So, I mean, another way of putting this is that we need to think about how life works beyond the purely utilitarian or the purely transactional and what can seem like surplus. You know, what Francis Bacon, um, going right back to the origins of the scientific revolution, wanted to drive out of human thinking because he thought it was inefficient and extraneous and would lead us astray, um, taking thinking in, in his perfect box purely to the logical. Actually, you're saying when you think again, you realise that what looked extraneous, as you say, like it should be left on the cutting room floor and the junk code plays crucial parts, not just in making good decisions, but actually in keeping life human too. Again, there's this kind of virtuous spiral coupling going on. And, and maybe one of the great challenges we face now is that in many parts of life already processes and services have been designed for the utilitarian, for the transactional. And sure enough, AI is likely to replicate that unless we not only think about the AI, but the wider world in which the AI will operate um, so that processes and services themselves have a, a redesign and bring in the junk code, bring in that which seems extraneous, but actually not only is good for us as human beings, but makes life better in terms of decision making and achieving goals and so on. Yeah, so there, there's been some headlines um, f from the interviews that are going on at the moment about the COVID inquiry um, that are revisiting this idea of herd immunity that was very much writ large in those first early months, where it emerged that the government was in danger of pursuing a strategy where it would be okay for all the old people to die because in a utilitarian calculus, you would have the survival of the fittest, you'd have the greatest good for the greatest number. Um, and actually, maybe COVID was a, a blessing in order to weed out all of those tedious people who were costing the NHS a load of money. And, uh, you know, let's get rid of all the vulnerable weak in a kind of Darwinian move. And um, of course, we all remember those days. And we remember that gut feel we had when that dawned on us that that might be a public policy where we all felt sick. And actually, that is really interesting as a human intuitive reaction, because it says something really deep about what ethic is actually at play in humans. And, you know, we love, you know, going on philosophy courses and talking about deontology and consequentialism and getting very technical on all our kind of moral frameworks. But it's only when a perfectly good moral framework, utilitarianism, does stack up in so many ways when you reach its limit, then you realise there's something else more important going on there. So in our human design, we have this felt sense of the dignity of the human. Um, and we've got all core, of course, in history, we've got millions of examples of humans absolutely getting this wrong and, and continuing to get it wrong. But <clears throat> we don't have to get it wrong. We have a, a gut reaction to things like herd immunity that suggests there is something fundamental in our makeup, which is about loving everyone individually because of them being a person regardless of merit or background or any of that kind of stuff um and and so it's interesting that that kicks in in these moments because it suggests that if we don't pay attention to that 
again, risky decision making. Um, because I, I think when you think about the function of intuition in the human design, it is even before we could articulate, even before we could, you know, have degrees in things and have gone to school, there was a way we could make very quick decisions on instinct. We, we call it all kinds of things, gut feel, you know, intuition, sixth sense, anything. But, but you know, if, if even when we were a tiny child, a dodgy person came towards us, our instincts would scream out, run away from dodgy person. And, and it's very hard for us to code that into a machine, but it's something we absolutely had deep in our in our design to keep us safe so all those things you know behoves us to really try and dig into that and say well what what is intuition then such that we would want to pay attention to it because you're right that the problem about the presumption of ai and this you were talking about the utilitarian calculus and and bacon but if you think about um thomas hobbs and leviathan and the idea of train of thought that that really kicked off this whole intellectual conversation that that thought is such a thing that you could copy it because it's got a beginning a middle and an end and it 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 is therefore liable to utilitarian calculus basically but but it is our train of thought we all know that's nonsense because there's there's lots of studies where they try and get you to say what your thoughts are and they're pinging around and there's something else that's just come in and you're picking up this and you've just suddenly noticed the temperature and the colour and you're thinking about your shopping list. So it's very rare that the human brain ever does pursue just one train of thought. That, again, isn't how we're wired. So, again, it's helpful for us to remember that even if we are programming things in that very logical one thought at a time sort of a way, there's probably a reason we have that noise and trying to remember that we're not, I would think as a species, we would have died by now if there wasn't some excellence in our design. And I'm sure it's always improving, but I don't think those things are likely to be design flaws. Otherwise they would have been designed out. So all that kind of noise and all those kind of externalities and extraneousness um, is probably deeply purposeful um, uh, and therefore fascinating in terms of trying to de-risk AI and trying to design it well. So this is thinking about the issue in relation to the ways of thinking about ethics then. And, you know, we've we've already nodded to utilitarian approaches that make a kind of calculus, the deontological, which is much more saying, you know, this is the way it should be done, sort of principles approach. But what I think you're um, suggesting is um, the third option um, in the tradition that philosophers track, which is virtue ethics. Um, I mean, I, I was I was listening to a conversation where this came up very strongly in relation to AI around driverless self self driving cars again, and um, the thought experiment was that um, if you are in your car and you program it to get to your destination, um, you you ha- immediately have options. Do you want to get to your destination with maximum safety for both yourself and anyone else on the street or in other cars? Or do you want to actually set a slightly different priority, which is to get to the destination more speedily, um, which might then compromise um, the safety that you have on the way? And, you know, immediately approaches a kind of calculus. You get back to those of us who have done philosophy, these kind of thought experiments where the decision sort of seems impossible when purely done as a calculus. Um, Whereas when you think about it in terms of virtue, what happens is that you're thinking about the character, the kind of habits, the personality traits, that not just as a way you might program into the machine, but that you yourself have. And what 
at least I don't quite know how this would work in terms of programming, but at least in principle, it seems that there's a bringing together then of um, the the person and the machine by thinking about things like characteristics, habits, qualities. And also, of course, virtue ethics um, brings in the sense of learning from mistakes. And so it's a reflexive system as well. It's not just a one-off calculation. Um, and it, as you mentioned just there, it involves elements like intuition and imagination, that kind of felt response. What kind of world um, am I contributing to um, is almost a question, even in quite a simple challenge like getting from A to B. Um, and so virtue ethics feels to me, you know, really important to think about here as well. Yeah, and I think that's so spot on, because again, if you are looking at um, a difference between deterministic AI, where you could either program in a deontological set of rules, or you could program in calculations about optimising outcomes in a kind of utilitarian way, if you are dealing with a system that has anything that looks like choice, um, and no parameters, uh, really, for, for de deterministic outcomes, um, then the the earlier analogy we talked about uh, to do with parenting becomes really important because actually that's what we do with our own kids we start by saying don't do that don't touch that don't go there don't pick pick on your brother you know we give them rules because it's much quicker um than kind of explaining you know potential consequences and options they might have when they're very small and and don't have complexity and language and reasoning so we naturally start with that. And then as they get more developed, we say, well, if you do that, you won't get any pocket money or well, I'll have to send you to bed early. And we start, you know, banging on about consequences and, and kids get that. But eventually they're going off to school. We've got no control of their environment. We don't know if they'll get picked on or if they'll forget their lunch or, or you know, whatever. So we have to give them coping skills. So naturally, as parents, we start pivoting towards virtue ethics because it's about how can we prime them so that they will always make the right decisions, even when it's a situation where we can't give them a rule or a calculation to look at because we don't know what those situations might be. So th there does tend to be that kind of evolution in our own moral formation that is something we're all very familiar with, actually, um, and is something that we need to be getting on the case about because in the same way that we graduate ourselves from rules to principles, because principles are more flexible in more situations, you know, there's no reason that we can't over time be a bit clearer about rules and principles in how we code behaviour into AI um, and start thinking about what are some of the the practices that all wisdom traditions know about the, the formation of virtue that we would need to take seriously if we are trying to help a system learn well, because we have spent thousands of years trying to help our own children and our own colleagues and our own species learn well. You know, we've even tried that with other animals and other life forms. So, you know, it's something we do actually have a lot of deep expertise in and, and we could apply it here. And to swing by this again in another way, which you've suggested, is to think about language and to think about the mood um, in which an AI is programmed. Um, and just to deconstruct that a bit, I think what you're driving at here is that um, some language we use is very demonstrative, very declarative, very, very certain, um, very demanding, commanding. That's a whole sort of one side of language. But there's another side of language which is more... Um, you know, interrogatory. Um, I wonder whether 
Um, it can be in the conditional or subjunctive. Um, what would it be like if? Um, and even um, for the grammarians listening, the optative, which is a more kind of yearning, even a prayer, a call. Um, I wish that. Um, you know, what 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 am I hoping for here? Um, and you know, th this is a form of language which, of course, we use all day, every day. Um, and we do have a choice about how the AI um, reflects our different moods, our different approaches to life. And um, and language feels to me quite a tractable way of thinking about this because you can see what kind of, of mood is um, being used to program an AI. And actually, when, when I was reading about this, it even made me think about how um, in a former life, I used to work for the Financial Times and I used to have to go around and do profiles of companies and they were all IT companies, but the feel of the companies was very, very different. You know, Apple felt very, very different from IBM and Oracle felt very, very different from Sun uh, Microsystems. And the character of the company was then reflected um, in the technology that was produced. Um, and you might, you know, use the kind of mood, the kind of language, which was part of that company culture that then fed into the the, the the not just the quality in terms of whether it was good or not, but the quality in terms of how it was like to interact with their technologies. And, you know, Apple is the standout example of this. Um, mm. it, it's not just, you know, it's very good technology, but has a, a look and a feel um, that is really valuable. And that's because in part of the look and feel of the company itself. Um, so this feels like another way um, of, of trying to get into this subject and, and think about what is being shaped, what's being parented. Yeah, and, and it's cultural tales of, of all kinds, really. I mean, I remember <clears throat> as a, an 18 year old doing a scholarship to a school in America and my essays just kept coming back with red pen all over them because I was using the passive. And it's not acceptable to be using the passive in essays uh, in American high schools. Uh, and again, that was a really interesting cultural difference because, you know, the UK is quite diffident and quite often we're a bit indirect about how we're phrasing things. Um, and of course, the, the style certainly in that environment in my school in America was that you had to be very subject verb object. You need to be very, very precise and specific. Um, so I've always been interested in how language betrays what's really going on. You, know, you don't need Wittgenstein and his language games to figure that out or sort of remembering with horror, you know, the subjunctive from when you did Latin. But the really interesting thing about mood is that the boffins would separate into two buckets. So there's realist moods and irrealist moods. So realist moods are all things that are the case. So the indicative is telling people what is. The imperative is telling people what they ought to do. The interrogative is asking questions about what is. Um, but irrealis is all that bucket of things you talked about, like the optative, which is hoping and dreaming, like the subjunctive, which is things which may or may not be, all of those things which are deliberately imprecise. And again, as you say, we segue into them naturally in, in our speech without re really tagging them in the way that if you're if you're looking at a written language, you would see changes in letters or changes in words or or changes in punctuation. But actually, when you're thinking about programming, it, it has always been very subject, verb, object, very uh, imperative, very indicative, um, maybe interrogative too. But the idea of uh, of these kind of irrealist, subjective -y kind of maybe, maybe this, maybe that, 
um, hasn't been something that would naturally fit in that environment because it's not definite enough. Um, but actually, when you think about anything that might be moving towards some kind of free will scenario, if you're thinking about virtue ethics, if you're thinking about fundamentally uncertain operating environments, then you're going to need to switch mood and you're going to need to figure out what would that even mean? Um, you know, what would it like to, what would it be like if you had an AI that was hoping and dreaming um, uh, and discussing possibility? Uh, and, and again, some of that is accidentally baked into um, some of the ways that we're getting things like chat GPT to ask questions or express doubt. But, but, but I think if you start leaning into the idea of irrealis as a human instinct, particularly in exploratory conversations, particularly in innovation, then it starts making you think about design in a different way, I think. Yeah, so um, free will has been mentioned a few times, and maybe, again, this is another way of circling around this question. Um, I actually wonder whether free will, as distinctive of human intelligence, is a good distinction to make, actually. Um, and this, this links to um, the interest in love. And because I wonder whether, um, rather than free will and reason, um, what really drives us is what you might call love and judgment. Um, and, you know, judgment is the assessing of something by certain criteria. Traditionally, in Platonic philosophy, the ultimate criteria have been the good, the beautiful and the true. And then it's love, it's desire that informs then that judgment because it's been drawn by something um, you know, that detects the beauty in something, the goods and the truthfulness and so on. And so th this is I, this is one place where I, I wonder whether um, love in relation to judgment drawn by that which is um, beautiful and, and all the nuance and the difficulty of that. I'm not pretending that's an easy thing to uh, make tractable um, in the human mind, let alone anywhere else. Um, but um, perhaps that's where love... Um, might become not just a sort of a good optional extra, but find a way right into the heart of design. Um, if we um, buy the argument that actually, um, you know, love is is fundamental to our intelligence, um, and it, it's partly around the the area of desire, um, but it's also in relation to the uncertainties you were talking about, because love for that which we don't yet have but yearn for helps us to bear suffering, helps us to bear uncertainty, um, is a kind, it informs the moral compass inside. Um, it, it brings a whole um, uh, sort of range of factors to bear and keeps them alive, keeps them important and pressing um, as we're trying to move forward or trying to work out what's, um, what's best to do or what to design in life. Um, so I wonder what, you know, what you make of that, that, you know, love is not just something as a word to program in, but might actually be really fundamental to um, intelligence. Yeah, and I think if you start looking at it as a an overarching design logic, if you want to, to call it that, um, it's also rather handy because one of the problems we've got is that we're in danger of coming up with something that's got a very westernised mindset and ethic um and we're now starting to figure out how do we program it to be moral in a slightly more interesting way than just optimizing outcomes but then we get into this sort of really difficult terrain about well whose morality and which generation which continent <laughs> all that kind of really difficult 
thing. Um, you know, do you program just all the world religions ever in and hope it can kind of figure it out? Um, but actually, the one thing we do know from our forensic theologizing over many, many um, countries and faculties and, and years is that love tends to be one of the common things that, of course, all wisdom traditions would agree on, because it does seem to be such a fundamental cornerstone of, of what we're up to in existing. So it's the nearest we've got to something that's universally agreed. Um, so if we were trying to come up with some sort of global system, um, then having an overarching rule of love would be something that it would be very unlikely you would get anyone to disagree with that from a, from a philosophical or religious perspective. And of course, we've got some quite good examples of, of contrasts in AI about love as a motivating force. So if you think about this business of programming emotions into AI in a very basic way, we've got loads of smarts on that because actually there have been these care bots, you know, and all kinds of assistants that have been particularly in use in Japan, but, but increasingly in lots of other settings around the world where they figured out that if, if the thing was a bit cute or if the thing sort of asked you how your day was and pretended to care about your feelings then it would it would make a better product. So there are armies of people who are who are trying to code emotional responsiveness into robots in particular, so that they are more attractive as products uh, and therefore would sell better and make you more money and all those kinds of things. So that, that's more of a profit motive than anything else, and it, and, and it's instrumentalizing emotions to make the product more effective. Uh, and I'm sure some people like to go to sleep thinking that's also because it's about love. But but ultimately, it's a choice about about profit. On the other hand, we've also got some smarts around emotions to do with the very real attempts that have been made through technology to help people on the spectrum. So if you have autism, one of the things that tends to be a real tricky problem is how you cope with human emotions and how you process them and how you aren't overwhelmed by them and all those kinds of things. And so there has been a very virtuous practice motivated by love to try and figure out how on earth could we make this easier for people who struggle. So the, the tech that's coming out of that is coming from a very different place and, and is probably more likely to be well thought through and robust and helpful and more ethical and all those kinds of things because it's motivated by a load of parents looking at their children thinking they're really struggling. What could we do with all our labs and all our money and all our finance and policy to, to make life more loving. How could we be more loving towards them um, by helping them understand love? Um, so I think it would be a safer design assumption um, than profit um, to be thinking, how would this serve love? Then how would this make us rich? Um, because again, love is one of those things that is hardwired into us and has stood the test of time, whereas profit is a fairly modern concept and and we don't know how that will fare in evolutionary terms but love seems to have been something that uh, has been absolutely crucial to the, the fact of us and the fact that we still prevail and um another way which i think this shows up and already shows up in how people talk about ai in the future now is that um, there's a sense that we're going to be in competition with the ai there's a kind of race on who's going to win and you know, some figures will stand up and say, we're going to be facing, you know, an entity that is way more intelligent than us. It's just over the horizon. And there is a sort of struggle um, for survival of the fittest um, kind of whole set of metaphors that are shaping the discourse. And um, whereas, you know, what you're saying there 
um, is that there's actually a whole other way of thinking about design. Um, and, and I wonder whether traditions of cybernetics um, are, are close to here, because it feels to me that that's much more about a collaborative sense of design and that the human is needed for the machine as much as the machine might be needed to aid the human. Um, because um, uh, it's that co-creative or cooperative interaction that for the machine brings the data live, you know, which is a very different approach from modeling the world um, and needing these massive data centers um, like the large language models. But then also that means that the human concern um, is deeply embedded, not just in the design up, up front, but maybe the ongoing um, formation of the, the machine as well. Um, and that that sort of sense of co-creativity, I mean, in, in evolution, there isn't just the metaphors of survival of the fittest and so on, the rather collaborative, co-creative, I think actually increasingly um, coming in in systems biology, um, in the physics that realizes that the observer is part of what shapes things and so on. Um, so looking, again, we, we have a bit of a design choice here. We can look to different kinds of metaphors that are operative in different parts of science or indeed in the commercial world um, and bring in those that um, might, again, not just foster something which might make for a better future, but that actually might make for better products as well. Yeah, and, and I think without wanting to shade into the sort of very difficult area of sex bots, which of course we can talk about, um, I would point out that we love bodies as well. It's not just a sort of emotional thing that we have a feeling called love. There's all kinds of ways in which that is a, affects our bodies, is how we relate to other bodies. And it's very material to see how fast AI is now improving now that robotics and AI are closer together. Because, of course, we know, again, from watching our own children, that the second you get mobile, your development accelerates in the most extraordinary fashion. And again, we're finding that even the most basic AI popped into a robot will develop very, very quickly because when you have a body, you have to do all kinds of stuff like understand how that plays out in a 3D space. You have to be able to read your environment in a very different way. All kinds of things that we instinctively have had to do as moving 3D creatures, which you don't have to do if you're just deep mind or you're deep blue or you're alpha fold or alpha go or anything which is incredibly specific and, and internalized, if you like. Um, so there is something about learning from the fact that love is not only in our heads, it's in our bodies. Um, and, and therefore, your idea that it is about co-creation is because we tend to be other directed in our love. It's not an internal preoccupation. It's something that involves other people. Um, and we tend to have that, again, that, that's been described not, not as a, a bug, but a functionality, that we will tend to love things, even even sex bots, even things that aren't human, we will love our houses, we will love pets, you know, we will love all categories of things because it's it's part of what we do is we extend our love to other things. So we are likely to fall in love with our robots. So we need to take that really rather seriously and try and understand when would that be healthy for us in terms of virtue and formation and when would that be dangerous, not only for us, but but potentially for them. And again, that's when we get into the whole area of robot rights and what that might mean. And then that takes us back into what are we up to? And if, we, if we're thinking about love, 
and not about danger and fear because these things might take over, then you start looking at things very differently. And it's not to say that these things are persons, but it's saying that we're persons and being persons, we have all kinds of propensities that are never going to be switched off. So we might as well take them seriously and deal with them. Yeah, and your thought there is taking me back to where we began, which is thinking about how what we deem unnecessary might be absolutely central. So I'm thinking about adaptability here too, um, and how technology is remarkably unadaptive. Um, it really needs the world already set up within which it can then operate. Again, if you think of cars, they're great as long as you've got roads. The minute you take roads away, they're almost useless. Um, and so those factors within us, which I think must be very much connected to our bodies and also our transience, our mortality, um, and the yearning um, to make something of our lives. Again, this is not a million miles from love. Um, that is all part of what makes us so adaptable. And so designing that in too, um, it seems to me, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come up as a, as a feature of our intelligence as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it does make me think that um, there's a, a rather lovely moment in um, one of the Doctor Who stories. It's one of the modern Doctor Who uh, TV stories where it's a two-part set in World War II and there's um, a monster, a child with a gas mask fused to its face who is terrorising London and changing everyone else it touches into monsters. And all these people are marching around with gas masks fused to their faces, um, chanting, are you my mummy? And, uh, you know, London is about to, you know, collapse. And Doctor Who figures out that um, mm -hmm. some alien nanogenes that had arrived in some canister or other had uh, attached themselves to this little boy. And because they're programmed to heal, they had thought that fixing him meant fixing him with his gas mask on, because that's what he was wearing when he was injured. And so every time he touches someone else, the nanogenes go into that person and fix them with a the gas mask because they think that's the design. And it's only resolved when Dot Two figures out that there's a woman there who's this child's mother. And so if she goes and hugs this boy who's saying, are you my mummy? And she says, yes, then the nanogenes will learn from her design that they've got the design wrong. And then, of course, that means all the other designs correct and you know, the world is saved. And there's something about that, which is that we've been a bit we've been a bit silly about copying ourselves. We, we've copied only the bits that are sort of easy and and uh, obvious, you know, all the lovely rationality and kind of sensible stuff that has become prized since the Enlightenment. And we've left out all that mess because we were a bit afraid of it and it's a bit contested and it's not very zeros and ones-ish. But as you say, if we ignore all that stuff, we're ignoring the, the very magic of our own design and why we are able to pivot and to change our minds and to, you know, roll with the punches and be resilient and, and flourish in all kinds of ways in different environments that we may or may not even be able to foretell in the future. So trying to be really, really meticulous about copying design. Even then, you know, most of our bodies are run by our subconscious and our unconscious. We've, we've actually got no idea what the, the whole kit and caboodle is if we only know about our conscious mind and what it is doing. So even if we copied everything we could possibly find out about ourselves, it would be incomplete. But that sort of necessary humility and that curiosity about all the stuff we've left out and all the things we thought was junk code, I think is really fundamental to this in love to think, well, we 
have flourished in love and maybe we could be more generous about that and try and create things that that we can be loving about and that we can love into better existences by taking their fulfillment and their well-being more seriously rather than instrumentalizing them from day one which is what we're doing that strikes me as a a good summary almost of the kinds of things we've been saying um this idea that um, the parenting analogy might work because there's this reflexive to and fro that's going to be necessary um, to make artificial intelligences because it's part and parcel of our own intelligence, actually, and that the things which have been seen as extraneous are performing important functions that enable us to, well, not just be in the world, but to make flourishing lives um, in the world as well. And I love this idea that, again, has been running through what you've been saying about how risk mitigation and good products actually can um, go hand in hand with a more virtuous approach to what is being designed. Um, if you want to, um, you know, help uh, save others, um, you might need to sort of think about how you might save yourself if you're an AI corporation. You might say um, as well. Yes. Um, so, and 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 then and then you know also this business about um, how love and emotion and so on. Is, is going to, I think, and this maybe is where the hope is that um, at the end of the day, um, you know, AIs, machine learning and so on, it's being put to the test. Is it going to work? Um, and I, I'm holding out for the, the fact that our intelligence has these multiple facets and that unless an AI mirrors that in some way, it, it, it's actually not going to deliver on the promise um, or bring about the threat. Um, so at some point, I think that, you know, reality will start to speak to us and not just this rather abstract, utilitarian, transactional um, world that, um, of competition, you know, rather than cooperation and so on, um, that, that, that can dominate the discussion. Um, we'll be driven to reconsider things from the ground up, as you're helping us to do um, in your book, Robot Souls, and in conversations like this. So, Eve, thanks very much indeed for your time.